This week, Wakanda Forever. Genius movie or giant bomb? Let's find out. The Nerd by Word starts now. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome to episode 132 of the Nerd Byword Podcast. And in this week's episode, Chris and I sit down with creator and host of X of Words to go do a deep dive into Wakanda forever. Uh, but before we get to this week's big target, as time is always for... All right, Chris, looks to me like you got some sad news that we need to discuss this week. Yeah, David, feels as though we were reporting on news stories like this all too often, unfortunately, in the nerd world. Uh, but we have lost another icon recently in Jason, uh, Jason David Frank, uh, who is perhaps best known for his role uh, as Tommy Oliver in multiple iterations of the Power Rangers franchise. Uh, Tommy burst onto the scene in 1993 and instantly became you know, everyone's favorite Power Ranger. Uh, his charisma, his charm, his overall swagger were undeniable. His passion for um, the franchise, um, you know, lasted decades and decades. And he truly, truly loved this and embraced it, um, you know, in a world where so many actors are ashamed of the things that made them famous or they get exhausted or jaded by it. That is very much not the case uh, with Jason David Frank. Um, as touching... Uh, tributes from fans and fellow cast members alike have poured in over the past few days. One thing stands out. Frank was immensely passionate about his work and his art and truly appreciated his fans. Um, may he rest in peace and comfort and love and strength to those close to him. Uh, particular um, lo uh, love to his widow, uh, who has unfortunately been harassed by a bunch of idiots online as is all too often the case. Um, and if you are targeting this woman who has just lost her husband, you are the saddest sack of that I have ever seen. Um, and let her grieve in peace. Yeah, I mean, the, the, this one, um, much, much like the passing um, of, of Batman himself very recently, uh, this has been um, a, a difficult uh, blow to... Uh, the childhood of nerds everywhere. Jason David Frank, obviously, um, you know, his Power Rangers involvement is sort of his uh, his main calling card. I don't even know um, how to describe my my obsession as a child with Power Rangers there for a while. It almost reached, you know, TMNT levels of absolute, like, obsessiveness. I had all the toys. I watched every episode. And I think the thing that actually cemented to me um, my love of Power Rangers was that, what, like, five-parter? Uh, in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, when the Green Ranger was introduced first as a villain um, and then was eventually turned and, and joined the team. Um, I think that the Tommy Oliver character is sort of, um, uh, I think, the real turning point for the show uh, where it becomes um, much more compelling. And, it, you know, it's undeniable. The guy was super talented, super charismatic, beloved by fans. There's a reason that he kept making return appearances only very recently. Uh, saying that he has officially retired from the role. Um, I know that um, 
the the current Power Rangers production probably reached out to him as they're hosting kind of a, a mini Mighty Morphin reunion for the anniversary. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to believe that we're never going to have another return performance of, of Jason David Frank as Tommy Oliver because it's just such a pivotal character to to not just Power Rangers, but I think to, to so many people's childhoods. And so, you know, I wholeheartedly echo what you said about, you know, his, his loved ones and his family and, and you know, they're in, they're in our thoughts. And, and this is just an absolute tragedy and a huge loss to the to the nerd world as well. Just think about how revolutionary that storyline was, you know, to have an adversary, um, you know, switch sides and become, you know, a hero that was, you know, think, think in the time of when that happened in 93 of, of all the quote unquote anti-heroes or troubled protagonists or people with, you know, heroes with red in their ledger and everything that kind of sprung from that. And this was not necessarily the first, but really one of the, at least for me, one of the the most memorable ones uh, that started this, this, that kind of endeavor. And you can talk, you can talk qualitatively about, you know, how later seasons of, of Power Rangers might have been, um, you know, better acted or, or um, have had some better writing because, you know, Mighty Morphin was in a lot of ways to trailblazer. But I still hold up, I think, that that Green Ranger 4 or 5 part or whatever it was as just one of the finest moments of the entire franchise. It was just so compelling to see this new Ranger pop up and tear tear through the original team and then ultimately be revealed to be brainwashed and then, you know, separate himself from the villains and join the team of heroes. I mean, that that whole that whole storyline was just so compelling. Um, and I think still stands as one of the best in the whole franchise. All right, Dave, we have um, a very fascinating uh, news story from your end. Yeah, so this is um, this is a weird one. Um, so as the nerds probably have heard, uh, at this point, Microsoft has been working on acquiring Activision Blizzard uh, for a reported $69 billion. This is, of course, um, just the latest in a series of acquisitions as Microsoft has been pouring money into acquiring uh, various studios and, and, and game developers in an effort, I think, to bolster its catalog and, and position its Xbox brand as more of a... Uh, uh, sort of a, a must-have. Um, and Activision Blizzard in particular has gotten a whole bunch of people uh, very nervous, in particular, uh, the place where a lot of nerves are, are you know, rattled by this news uh, is, of course, over at Sony, um, where there has been huge concerns that once Microsoft owns Activision, that they could potentially make you know, the mega blockbuster franchise Call of Duty and Xbox and PC exclusive and thereby cutting out a whole bunch of potential customers that might buy a, a PlayStation, but then would probably prefer to play on PC or buy an Xbox just because of, you know, Call of Duty being one of their main um, games that they enjoy. And so uh, this has been very carefully looked at by the uh, Federal Trade Commission. There's also been regulators in Europe looking at this very carefully. Um, because there's concerns that this is going to create uh, sort of an unfair market condition uh, where basically the, the biggest, you know, video game franchise in the world sits with one company like that, who is also a hardware manufacturer, thereby being able to lock in people into their hardware. Now, the there's been sort of reporting from Bloomberg um, behind the scenes a little bit, nothing has been officially announced, that uh, the FTC 
is uh, positioning itself to uh, challenge this acquisition and block uh, the purchase. Um, and Microsoft is apparently not willing to go down without a fight. Um, and according to a, the newest Bloomberg report, is gearing up to contest uh, any blocking of this acquisition in court, which means that we could have a protracted court case where Microsoft is trying to to purchase this company um, and the federal government is attempting to block it. Now, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of bias in me when it comes to this situation, because I am a, a big fan of, of Microsoft's Xbox brand. And I think that this would be uh, a good thing for that brand. At the same time, though, I also find it incredibly fascinating that this um, particular situation is where the federal government and the FTC are trying to stake their case against monopoly, considering, you know, the positioning of Amazon. Uh, the positioning of Google, and so many other things that have been happening, not just in the tech world, but in the business world, period, that of all the things that where they want to stake their claim, it's uh, Sony does not want to lose uh, Call of Duty. Uh, I find this whole situation extremely fascinating. You know, I, I'm very, very curious to hear, Chris, your thoughts on this matter. Yeah, I, I, I you almost took the words right from my mouth. I'm, uh, you know, I think immediately of Disney and their per, their proliferation of of this IP arms race. Why is this, you know, the 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 final nail in the coffin for the federal government to step in? Um, is there is there a is there a, a secret society of uh, Call of Duty gamers in in the federal government that that we don't know about? Um, why why is this the thing? I know that I'm not a Call of Duty person. Um, but I know that they recently released the new one, I believe. So, um, you know, that, that makes, you know, it's an interesting context as well, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm fascinated to see this play out and I'm, I'm right there along with you. I'm an Xbox only gamer. Uh, my series S is the only, um, console that I have at the moment and very pleased with it. So I'm just going to sit back with my popcorn and watch this unfold because it is really, really interesting. Yeah, sure. I mean, it is interesting. I also think there's something extremely troubling about this, though. Um, you know, obviously, Sony has been uh, excellently positioned in recent years uh, in its competition with the Xbox brand. Um, and and so seeing, you know, Microsoft make some moves to position the Xbox brand, you know, more favorably is, is I think, absolutely a great thing for competition. Um, so, so basically saying, you know, that that Call of Duty, of all things, is the sacred cow that must be multi-platform is interesting, especially considering that Microsoft has not made any announcements or moves that Call of Duty would be somehow exclusive, exclusive to its platforms. Um, and in fact, um, it, it, most of their recent acquisitions, they have not made any major moves to make multi-platform games suddenly uh, locked in as an exclusive. So I understand to some extent the concern of Sony that they're going to lose this powerhouse um, as, as a, you know, reason to buy playstation but on the other hand like so far at least there has been no major moves to make multi-platform games exclusive and at least the way the market is positioned right now i think microsoft would be extremely silly to do so as they would be leaving some serious dough on the floor um i don't think they they make particularly a lot of money off of hardware sales right it's mostly software so making making call of duty exclusive to move more hardware units I don't know if that's a good long-term strategy. Um, 
at least not the way the market is right now. I mean, that could change in the future, obviously. But I just, it's very, very odd to me that Call of Duty has become the sacred cow that's got everybody's uh, knickers in a twist, so to speak. See, I don't see. I don't know, like any. I don't have any hardcore data to back this up. But you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Is all of the Bethesda games are still available across platform? Am I, am I correct in making that statement? Yeah, as far as I know, everything Bethesda is still multi-platform. There has not been any move to like to change anything about that, as far as I know. So, just for me as a consumer, when I recently made the purchase of this Series S. Having those Bethesda games available day one at no additional cost with, you know, the Game Pass subscription, like that's that's a strong enough selling point to where you don't have to make it exclusive. But if you make it an inclusion there in the Game Pass element, I think that's that's a strong enough statement and a, a strong enough you know sales pitch, if you will, that you don't even have to make it exclusive. Yeah, I think that's probably a, that's probably fair as well. I mean, you know, there's there. <sighs> I don't know, man. This is just a weird situation to me. Uh, not because there's concerns about monopoly, because I think that is a that is a valid um, concern. Uh, th- th- I think that's just a valid concern across the board. However, it's just that this is the sacred cow. This is the place where where we're going to have the federal government step in. Uh, that that seems just incredibly odd to me. Alrighty, folks. Well, that's it for nerd news. Stick around as Chris and I together with X of Words creator and host Ash, will dissect Wakanda forever. Alrighty, folks, and we're back with this week's... And as promised, this week we will be reviewing the sequel to 2018's Black Panther, this year's Wakanda Forever. And to add a much-needed perspective to our review, we have invited a special guest, uh, and that is, of course, Ash, who is the uh, creator and host of the X of Words podcast. Ash, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So as we usually do when we review one of these movies, we are going to go ahead and each break down our three major likes and our three major dislikes before kind of putting a final grade and bow on the whole thing. And since we have Ash as our special guest, we'll go ahead and start with him. Ash, what is your first major like of Black Panther Wakanda Forever? First, <laughs> my first like is probably the costuming. Um, and I think that's something that hits me from the moment the movie starts. And it's been consistent across both movies. But just the level and the quality of even the smallest details from the architecture to the costumes to the weaponry to the tech, everything is so intentional. Uh, and it's meant to be evocative of different tribes, of different time periods. Um, and one of the things that I loved most about the first film was I mean, I love the first film, but then post-film, getting to watch it again when it released digitally and like pause it and really deep dive into stuff and then jumping back and seeing um, all the background of the design was like a major, major, major benefit for me. Yeah, just give Ruthie Carter does it again. Like, I, I, it's incredible to me that like someone can be at the top of their game, like to that level. 
You know how Amazon Prime Video has like that X-ray feature where you get like all these little in- bits of information while you're watching the movie? Yeah. They could about do that whole feature in nothing but costuming for this movie. Like you could you could have all these little things popping up that just like gives you the background of how the various costumes were designed, how the sets were designed, what what various, you know, cultures are supposed to be referenced by by this piece and that piece. And it would probably be like the coolest the coolest feature to add to this movie because there's so much going on. Exactly. And I, I don't think that's any I don't think that's a particularly easy job either, because like we know, a lot of comics play very fast and loose with any sort of cultural black background that doesn't come from, you know, America, basically. So I think Ruthie Carter had the job of not only bringing to life the comics aspect of Black Panther and the way people dressed, um, but also in correcting some of the mistakes. So it's like this incredible melding of fantasy, but real world history and then the comics influence as well. Um, and I particularly, re- I, I particularly respected what she did with, um, with M'Baku because I think that there could have been so many ways to get essentially a gorilla outfit wrong. And she managed to tread a line. And I think that to me was like indicative of how well she can mark and merge um, real history with comics history and give it to you in a way that still feels authentic and, and just beautiful and gorgeous to look at. All right, Dave, what is your first big like of this film? Uh, you couldn't you couldn't wait. As soon as you had finished it, you were immediately texting me this. Oh, yeah, yeah. The very, the very first thing was just how, how, how much I like Shuri in this movie. I mean, Letitia Wright was uh, sort of a scene stealer already in the first one. Um, and Shuri kind of was like my favorite new character introduced to the MCU there for a while. But uh, she was, you know, the, 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 the sidekick, you know, kid sister character. And here she, you know, she gets to take this character and fully bring it, you know, bring the performance into her own. And it is, it's fantastic the way, the way she, you know, kind of portrays those stages of grief and how she's trying to deal with, with the loss of her brother and, and what she considers her own personal failure. Um, the, the performance is what anchors the movie without a strong performance from Letitia right here. The whole, the whole thing would have fallen apart and she just rose to the rose to the challenge perfectly. Absolutely pitch perfect. Every time she was on screen, I was mesmerized. It was, it's just a fantastic performance. Oh, okay, cool. I, I, I agree. But I, I think I also think. Sorry, am I, li- am I allowed to? Yeah, go. Of course, go. jump in anywhere. Yeah, go, please. Thank you. I haven't been a guest in so long. It's like <laughs> you used to be on the other side. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I need to take my shoes off. Um, <laughs> but please don't. <laughs> um, I, I totally agree with you, but I also think that like Ryan Coogler wrote this in such a way that. For me, at least, Letitia Wright's story in the film was the story of Letitia Wright. Shuri and Letitia Wright have exactly the same arc. So the passing of Chadwick Boseman puts Shuri in a position where suddenly she has to take the helm of this huge, uh, this huge thing that she didn't think that she'd ever have to be in charge of. And Letitia Wright, the passing of Chadwick, suddenly throws her into having to take the helm of the Black Panther franchise, which she never thought she'd be the part of, and I thought the beauty of it, and especially, I think it was focused for me in Letitia Wright, is how the reality of the story mirrored the reality of the actors themselves. 
Yeah. And so for me, even where, because I thought there were certain times where Letitia was a bit awkward. Like she stepped into that leading, that leading role a little bit awkwardly. But for me, that added to the, that added to the authenticity of the role because it is, it would be awkward, you know? And every time Letitia was a bit awkward or I was like, uh, it made me think, well, yeah, she's been thrown into this. Both Shuri has both been thrown into this and Letitia has been thrown into this. So for me, like there was, there was no way she could take a wrong step because when she was, when she embodied the role, I was so proud to see her embody the role and where those, in those times where I thought that, you know, the punch could have been a bit harder or the, the emotion could have been a bit deeper. I was like, I, I got it. And I, I think knowing the the circumstances of both the character and the actor made her performance so much more meaningful to me watching it. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think for me, what I appreciated about it the most was uh, how relatable her procession of grief was. She went from mm. denial to anger to rage to well, I need to do things so differently than T'Challa did. And then it was like an overcorrection. And then you kind of find whatever balance. And that's so relatable, even as even outside of losing someone and, and, and loss in the family. It's, you know, when you become like an adult, whether you're a parent or not, you kind of are like, well, I like what this, you know, this I enjoyed what my parents did and that legacy that they passed down to me or my grandparents. And I've still got to find your own space. And that was so real to me. It's, it's tricky. It's, it's tough because there was a lot of loss in that movie. Uh, and it was a lot. I mean, what did you think generally about the way that she handled loss as a, as a topic? It, it, it was a complicated thing because, like you said, it, it, there, was, there was so much reality to it. And then she kind of straddled the fence of... The her her relationship with Namor was fascinating because she was like, hmm, he's he's really he's really laying down some facts and maybe we should really do this. And yes, my brother was too noble. And then without him there to anchor her as he was in the first mm-hmm. film, the only real anchor that she had was her mother. And then when she was gone, that took everything. And so she was she was lost in 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 the abyss or whatever. Yeah. All right, Chris, so what is your first like of the movie? Okay, so I, I called this. Uh, I think I posted the tweet, but I, I said that I desperately, as someone who's a big fan of mythology, uh, and of course, someone who's obsessed with Mesoamerican and Latine culture and indigenous culture, I said, I need Mesoamerican deities on the screen represented just like their Norse counterparts, like their Greco-Roman counterparts, and here it is. Uh, I loved I loved everything about Namor. Uh, I thought Tenoch Huerta, everything uh, we talked about with Shuri, uh, you know, in the film and outside of it. I love everything that he represents and standing up for indigenous rights and the colorism and racism that takes place in his native uh, Mexico. Uh, I loved his origin story. I thought it was so brilliant and smart. Um, I loved his motivation. The fact that, you know, they found this new home under under the sea and um i loved baby namor just laying waste to uh the plantation <laughs> it was a great moment uh and then everything about his presence i thought it was palpable i thought it was powerful and i think this i don't know if it's recency bias or whatever or my bilingual bias but i think this might be my favorite mcu villain i also think it's probably fair to say that it's the best 
reinvention of a comic book character that the MCU has done. I mean, they have done, you know, changes and tweaks to characters as they bring them to the screen. But this is probably the ideal um, scenario. Like they, they took a character that is good in the comic books and, and actually were able to improve on him. And, and I, I really do think this is a vast improvement. It's a, it's a fantastic interpretation of the character. I agree. I agree. And I think like, you know, the MCU synergy, you can already see the push starting to go the other way. Like there are certain changes that happen in the MCU that have an outsized impact on the comics. And the amount of fan art that I've seen of this new version of Namor is incredible. So I'm, I've been sitting here silently waiting for the, 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 the on panel Namor to have a little bit of a shift Similar to what they did with Aquaman in DC. Yeah, and you know, you know, the Aquaman thing was was pretty subtle. Besides, you know, giving him long hair and some tattoos, but um, I think this is a much more significant shift. And I think it would be really smart in a lot of ways. I think one of the things this has done is created a very, very strong differentiation between Aquaman and and Namor. I mean, th- that's something that, considering that Aquaman made it to the screen first. Um, I think that's something that was desperately needed for the general audience to be like, oh, this is, you know, this isn't just like off-brand Aquaman. Um, and I would like to see a little bit of backwashing into the comic books for this interpretation. I think that would be that would be really good for the comics. Yeah, I think um, not to not to spoil my next big like, but I think when you say the the best reinvention, I would still hold hold out for Mbaku, but I love specifically what. Um, Tanahasi Coates did with the Imperial Galactic Galactic Empire Wakanda, uh, and in reintroducing both Nakia and Mbaku into the comics, and that was, you know, sometimes we complain about the MCUification of the comics, and sometimes it's it it kind of waters it down and distills it to something we don't want it to be. But I think this in this case, it's it's an added benefit. Definitely. And just before you move on, like the other thing that I really liked about Namor was, um, and forgive me for not saying. Uh, his name, as you're saying it, Namor. Got to get that R rolling if you want to do it like Chris. No, 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 no. You only roll the R if it begins with an R. If there's a double R, so okay, boss. I I'll work on that. Right. Jesus Christ! Ever since I got I got my tonsils removed, and I can't make that sound anymore. I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. That is not a fucking joke. Like they they took what's that thing? Your uvula. Yeah, they took out the tonsils and the uvula, and I just cannot roll my R's. They took out your uvula. Yeah, gone. That is that a thing, or is that was an added extra, like a plus one? <laughs> while we're in here, while we're in here, we're just going to take this thing. Really. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it wasn't added extra. I'm I'm completely ignorant of a tonsillectomy. Like, is that a? You're trying to say they they did buy one. Buy one, get one free in my mouth. Yeah. Buy one, get one half off. <laughs> <laughs> I only know it as the, the thing that's swinging the back of your throat. I've been listening to too much Cardi. <laughs> oh, dear. Not okay, this. okay, okay. You know, we're, uh, we're going down a bad road. <laughs> we are talking about Namor, and that is a large portion of the support behind him, isn't it? <laughs> Listen, I don't, I don't want to put my dirty feet on your couch, so I didn't want to bring that energy to you, you people's fine establishment. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but also, the thing I really did love about it was um, talking about the reinvention... I think Momo was this perfect split of 
uh, additive reinvention of new aspects that really enriched the character and gave him like a better a better backstory or something something meaty that gave him like uh, animus and, and and context, but also keeping some of the campy. Mm-hmm. That was iconic about the character. Like I was, I was so happy to see that he had the little, the little wings. wings and then when yeah. he started doing the, the hummingbird thing, I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. And the way that he, the way he flew, I, th- I think whoever designed the way Namor flew was one of the geniuses of the movie. Because there's so many ways that that could have gone wrong. But this, like, this almost skiing. It was insane. And I, I remember walking out going, they've managed to not only depth in the character, but keep the cheesy bits and make them compelling. Uh, and that was that was incredible. Yeah, make, making making ankle wings work was quite a trick, I have to say. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And most importantly, he's he's the big time asshole. And and that that keeping that part of it. That's true. Yeah, but then you know, it's Ryan Kugler, so he's never gonna give you an asshole that you can't understand. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, he's an asshole, but you're always going. I mean, I see how you got there. <laughs> Listen, I I immediately flash back to the the British Museum part from the first film, and I was like, that Killmonger moment is still one of my favorites. Yeah, like Ryan Ryan Coogler's antagonists are basically like, I get it, but whoa, 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 <laughs> a little too much dip on your chip. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I, mean? <laughs> I was riding. I was riding with you for a minute. <laughs> Yeah, easy, bro. Like, come on. <laughs> There's a lot of people in that city. <laughs> like, it was, yeah, but it's, it's good. It's good. It was, it was a good in- interpretation for sure. All right, Ash, what is the next uh, big like that you have for this film? Riri was a big like. Um, <clears throat> and I, ch- I pivoted to this because M'Baku was my, was a big, was a big like, but that was like a sneak hit. Like, I didn't realize how much I loved M'Baku's, role and what he stood for and what he represented in the film until I walked away from it and realized that he was in the background of everything um but then Riri I think was uh uh, one of the shining stars for me because there's a bit of a legacy of black characters in the MCU getting their foot up through other films so Black Panther was introduced in an Avengers film and Riri is introduced here. And I don't know why there's, I like this sort of, I liked that Riri got her, her first run in a Black Panther movie. I think that was iconic. Like, and that to me, there was something about it, like metatextually about how Chadwick opened the door. You know, Chadwick had to do his, his, his introduction as part of an ensemble of, you know, 17 other white heroes. And he created a foundation that was so strong that Riri gets to be introduced in a Black Panther film, surrounded by Letitia Wright, by Angela Bassett, by these by these incredible actors. And I was just like, that is that felt like Chadwick's legacy to me as well. She had an incredible, an incredible debut. I think the comedy things were on point. It was never too much. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm looking at you, Thor. Like hey, hey, hey. <laughs> not have you seen that have you seen that video where like migos all stand up out of the chairs yeah okay look thor, thor is a funny movie but it starts to die by having too many comedy relief characters there's only so many comedy relief characters you can have in a film before everything becomes a punchline and i think she had a perfect 
introduction, comic relief turn, uh, and a nice conclusion. Um, I'm really, really looking forward to this series. I don't know where we go. I mean, I think I'm assuming that the Wakandans are going to take back the suit that she built there. Yes, the like the big mecha suit that she had. As was I a super fan of it? Eh, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm looking forward to see what they do. Yeah, I I had never I had never seen uh, any of Dominique Thorne's work, but she immediately won me over. I was just like, this is this is magnificent. I thought I thought that her delivery was authentic and real, and I like I like what Tevin said in the group chat. It feels like a smart mouth cousin, like like it felt authentic True. and real, and it felt like someone you know, just like who runs their mouth twenty four seven and but can back it up at the same time. Yes, and the instant, the instant chemistry that she had with Denai, uh, so Okoye, was in- incredible. I mean, they shared maybe, what, two scenes over the whole film? But you know when they were in the, um, you know, the small, small girl bit? When she yes. goes to throw the, uh, what, she, she goes to throw like a, like a space heater or something. Yeah, and then she's like, has a, like a stereo system or something over her head while she's saying it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those are the bits that I think shone out for me. And the fact that she could have like this really sort of sisterly uh, and at times seemed a little bit maybe even flirtatious energy with Letitia Wright. The fact that she could like be so instantly like bonded to Okoye. She she was an amazing like piece of glue throughout the series. Every character that she interacted with, there was like a, a, a unique but valuable dynamic that she created. Uh, and I really, I'm really looking forward to see well, what she does with Ironheart. And I will say, I don't know much about the character from the comic books. I kind of just peripherally have encountered the character. But I think uh, you hit the nail on the head when you said that it's it was very, very smart to introduce the character in a, in a Black Panther movie. Um, I think this could have gone... This could have gone very wrong if they would have introduced the character earlier in an Iron Man 3 or something like that. You know, like having her... Um, d- divorced a little bit from this Iron Man legacy and, and kind of latching her on more with a connection with Wakanda, I think is really, really smart. Dave, what is the next um, big like that you have for this film? So as of this recording, I just uh, yesterday watched the um, the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, Christmas special, which is a whole separate conversation. But uh, watching watching this movie and 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 that Christmas special back to back, I got something from the MCU that I usually don't get, which is emotional resonance. Um, I feel like, you know, the MCU movies are generally really good popcorn movies, um, but they don't usually hit the emotional beats as strongly as they could or should. I mean, we got a whole Thor movie. I know we're picking on Thor, Chris, but we got a whole Thor movie where one of the central conceits is that Jane Foster is dying of cancer. And I don't think the emotional... Uh, the resonance of that was ever truly explored in the movie. It was so busy, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudging the whole time that that the strong emotion of the moment was kind of left on the floor. And I know that there's a, yeah, there's a lot of stuff, you know, behind the scenes, you know, with the passing of Chadwick Boseman and everything that, that kind of left that emotional rawness sort of as the starting point of the script, the starting point of the performances um, so there's a re- very real world origin of that emotional rawness. But when I look at this and then I look at sort of the, 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 the sweetness um, of the emotion presented in, in the Guardians of the Galaxy special, what I realize is that this is something I sorely miss. It's just some emotional heft to these movies. I think so much of the MCU is spending way too much time trying to be 
lighthearted and fun and humorous um that they they let real genuine emotion just sometimes just just on the cutting room floor or i don't know um but but this was a, a heightened experience and a much better experience for a superhero movie to feel real emotion in the characters and in the performances and i wish they would find a way to duplicate this kind of thing without having to to lose somebody <laughs> you know it's it's an absolute tragedy what happened behind the scenes um I just wish that we could get some of this emotional resonance in other projects as well. I mean, I I don't know how to I don't know how to follow that. Um, yeah, it's 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 really powerful and and impactful. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I liked what you said at the end as well because I sometimes balk at the silver lining of Black Death. Black people die, and people go, "Oh, well, you know, it did." And I'm I'm glad actually that we're all sort of on on the same the same foot of thinking that they had to do this this had to be uh, a tribute to chadwick it had absolutely to there was no there was no other film they could have made and i'm glad it was and i think i think for the most part it was a it was a it was a great tra- tribute it i think it was compassionate in the way that it handled uh the the textual passing i think it was gracious in the way that it had handled the meta textual passing in that it gave the actors an outlet and it's almost like they could mourn him in a way that honored him globally, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, and that's very powerful, yeah. It is, but I, I, I totally agree with you. It shouldn't be a learning period. I don't want to cast it as like, a, I don't want to frame it as like a learning thing. But yeah, I totally get where you're coming from. That actually emotion is something that the other movies should be embodying. And you're right, and I think like... To, not to well yeah i'm not gonna say i don't mean it because i do mean it i'm gonna i'm gonna get thor again <laughs> god i'm sorry i'm sorry look you you chose you chose you, you're you're totally right the fact that jane foster is suffering terminal cancer and we spend a, a ridiculous amount of the film like looking at guy what's his name russell crowe Oh, the, the the guy who plays Zeus, yeah, yeah, like and and watching goats slam into the moon, and it's just it it felt like they misjudged what the story was. Like those were all pieces that could have elevated or brought lightness to the main story of a hero who has to choose between altruism and survival. But you know they prioritized it differently, and here they were forced to prioritize it. No, not even forced. No, they weren't forced at all because that's, I'm sure they wanted to honor Chadwick and there's no, they wouldn't have wanted this to be slapstick or humorous anyway. But just comparing those two movies, yeah, I think emotion could be a much, much more central, meaningful part of, of going forward. All right, Chris. So what is your uh, second like of the movie? Uh, I hinted at it before. Um, and, and you guys have both commented on it as well, but I just, I just love the story of M'Baku. I love that complete restoration of the Jabari tribe, uh, with, with the rest of the tribes of Wakanda. I think it's just a beautiful full, so full circle moment. It was the reason that I was campaigning for him to be the new Black Panther. And as if, if I've read reports correctly, there were, there were, uh, quick reports and considerations of him and Nakia, my one and two picks, uh, to to be the panther for a short period of time, but I I I kind of I like that they did it this way, and it I think it was much more meaningful than just putting him in a suit. 
Um, I think what Winston Duke brings to the role and to the fandom as well. He's a great online presence. He's a very kind uh, individual uh, from everything I've seen. And um, I, I particularly love the scene where he's standing and talking with Shuri. Um, it, it was just really part of it was part of that emotional uh, impact for me and how his his kind of story has has come full circle and now that he's the the king of Wakanda. So I love everything about M'Baku and uh, I think it's, I think it's my personal favorite retooling in the MCU. It is a fantastic character and, and not to put the cart before the horse. One of my dislikes of the movie is that M'Baku was not in it more. Um, the, the, the character is absolutely fantastic and the performances as well. I don't think um, I ever enjoyed somebody eating a carrot as much as that, that scene at the <laughs> beginning with M'Baku. And <laughs> it's just that, that whole carrot scene was absolutely fantastic. Um, it's just, it's a really, really cool character that I think. Um, people seem to think works best in small doses, but I think it, he would work much better, much better in even bigger doses. My hope is that now that he's king of Wakanda, that we're going to see, you know, in a potential third movie, a lot more of him. I loved that the things that made him the best pick for king was exactly the reason why he would never do it. Like he was so supportive and wanted to help other people flourish and grow. Yep. I, I really loved I lo- I think he I think he was an amazing, amazingly well rounded character. Like I totally agree with, with what you're saying. Yeah. Do you think who do you think was the better comic? Who do you think was the better comic relief? Riri or Mbaku? I think I think comic relief, I would give it to Riri, but I think I think he, like I said, he had that emotional resonance and I think he shifted from, he was the comic relief from the first film and there was more depth to him, uh, I think, in this one. I think that's fair. All right, Ash, I do believe we are at your uh, third like for the movie. Um, Yeah, yeah, I think I've kind of covered it, honestly. <laughs> um, I think I kind of covered it, yeah. It was, it was, honoring, it was honoring Chadwick. I mean, this, it was, um, it was, beautiful i think the the funeral scene particularly was beautiful and very it was very sad it was it was celebratory you know it was sad but it was celebratory and that's what i liked about it and i liked that we got a movie that was a celebration of all the things that the character meant to people and all the things that chadwick as an as an actor and a friend meant to the cast even in other people's journey through grief, I think it was handled really, really respectfully. Um, and I, I, again, I, I mean, I'll touch on um, Mbaku, and I think um, Mbaku's role, and, and even Ramonda, Mbaku and Ramonda are just loving, you know, in, in, holding, in holding Letitia's hand through the film, in supporting each other, um, and I think that the fact that the cast, both the actors and their characters, sort of hold space for each other and support each other and lift each other up through the trials that come from, you know, the loss itself and then the consequences of the loss itself um, was all a, a celebration of, of Chadwick's effect. Because, I mean, you know, when, when, pe- when you hear people speak about him, he, he was that, you know, he was very supportive and somebody that everybody felt close to and felt they could rely on and, and engaged and connected with people. And that, that, that the characters would sort of rally around each other, I think was an amazing um, 
testament to that. I don't think I can really add much to that. I think that was that that's pretty much spot on. Uh, Dave, what is your third and final like of the film? I'm really interested to dive into this. Yeah, and I feel I felt right away when I put this in in our in our shared document here that uh, that this is something that you were going to be uh, interested in talking about because it is something that resonates with both of us. Um, the movie, uh, to some extent, the the first movie did this as well, but I think it comes on much more to the forefront than the second one. Is that there's a really strong connection to history um, and to the notion of. Um, Western civilization and its exploitation of resources um, from, you know, other civilizations. I think that that is something that, you know, in in historical circles, um, as somebody who studied history, in historical circles, that is talked about a lot. You know, there's all sorts of, you know, extensive meditations on 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 why this imbalance occurred, why Western civilization was able to come in and 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 dominate others. I know there's a really good book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, um, that that does a really good job of trying to analyze that, even though it doesn't come to a clear answer, because you know there's not always a clear answer when you're looking at you know historical conundrums like this. But I think it is not something that popular culture or or general audiences always really think about in in let's say this neck of the woods as as they say um i think this is something where the 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 civilizations that experienced uh exploitation of resources exploitation of labor they're acutely aware of this but um the exploiters the descendants of the exploiters are not uh acutely aware of this and and being able to bring that conversation to the forefront in a superhero movie, uh, a, a blockbuster tentpole movie of all things, um, and having that commentary, um, you know, is is fascinating. And even even bringing up the notion of continued exploitation, uh, which is you know what the CIA subplot is doing. And I didn't I didn't like the CIA subplot much, but there was an attempt at least to tie into that. You know, like there there is this nation that has this resource and we want it and we will do whatever we need to to get it and not just get it but be the sole holder of this resource um i think those are conversations that need to be had um and and seeing a a pop culture pillar like the mcu being willing to use a character like namor and say look this this is the history of exploitation um you need to be aware of this you need to have an understanding of this i think that is that's bold um, and was and was really really uh, an interesting thing to see in an MC, MCU movie of all things. So I really really liked the the strong connection to history and and its commentary that it was willing to do, uh, which I think a lot of other blockbusters would 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 not be willing to do for fear of alienating audiences. So I, I thought this was really bold. Yeah, I think it also grounded it in some authenticity and it and it made it real. And uh, I think it made the the inspiration and the backstory for Namor uh, all that much more believable. Um, and and uh, I I was re- I really was was surprised that it made as strong a statement as it did. I think I think uh, looking at our dislikes in the in the chart right here, we all are taking pot shots at the CIA storyline here coming down the pipe. But um, I, I I was surprised that it was willing to make that strong of a statement. It was a pleasant surprise. I think that's core to it being a good movie. I don't think you can make a movie about Wakanda without those themes being the forefront. Because I think like Wakanda as a concept 
is just an answer to the question. It's, it's, it's grounded in the history of exploitation. It's grounded in geopolitical realities. And it's just an answer to the question of what if an African nation was untouched? Like that, and, and that's it. And I think that anything, if you make a movie about that nation that somehow shies away from the themes and foundations that the very idea was born from, you'd be doing it a massive disservice. So I think, um, and it, to, to your point, uh, Dave, when you were talking about, you know, the, these realities not being so much of a top theme here, I agree. Um, and it, it brought to mind that, um, you know, uh, the, the axe forgets and the tree remembers. And it's it's interesting too. I had I had to think a little bit, um, you know, with the history of exploitation, all of that. I had to think a little bit about um, about the British Museum and all those artifacts that are held there from from other civilizations. In particular, there are a bunch from from African civilizations, and and every time that you know you know returning these artifacts is brought up, the the officials running the British Museum just come out and basically say, nah, nah, we're not doing that. And it's just it's one of those it's one of those fascinating things that is still on you know on the forefront of of the minds of those that have been exploited, but it's still also very much dismissed by the exploiters. Even like making things right is not is not something that people seem very interested in. Oh no, and I think that like this is one of the few films. I don't even think it was bold because, um, all right, in every country there are people who know the Black Panther version of the story. Um, but the mainstream, the mainstream movies, and what you see usually is a trivialization, a total trivialization, and even at times like fluff pieces for imperialism, uh, militarism, um, d- d- genocidal, genocidal uh, proactive intervention in other countries. I mean, there's a whole half of, half of the other half of Marvel itself is like propaganda for the military. Um, so the only the only thing that I'm that might be contradictory for me is that you know you've got also got Captain America who for the longest time was like USA and then you've got Black Panther going really, <laughs> but it's 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 like this is the reality of this is this is the reality of Western impact without the rose tinted glasses on it. Like this is this is this is how America, France, the UK look from the other side of the fence, and I think it was just a very clear look, because, of course, you know the Black Panther is 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 no longer in position, and the bullshit starts, and I think one of the most powerful scenes in the movie is when, um, I, do you know what? I keep on having to remind myself to call her Ramonda. And not Angela Bassett, right? <laughs> I have to remind myself that like she's she's playing a character, but I, I can't. It's it's tricky. Um, but when she walks in into the um, is it the UN? Yeah, it's the UN. Yeah, it's the UN. Yeah, when she walks into the UN with the with the mercenaries, I was like, yes, yes, because think about how many other films where think about the hundreds of films we've seen where we would be with the mercenary team. Oh yeah, we'd watch them do the heist. We'd watch them come in, and all these nameless, faceless Africans would have been getting shot and stabbed on the way to get something for their country. And like, it's that's what it is. Suddenly, we're on the other side of it, and that's why I think so much of this had to be grounded in it. Because in other countries, that heist succeeds. 
you know, in reality, that heist has succeeded. And here, this is like an imagination of what happens should had had a had a had an African nation been left unmolested long enough to get the wherewithal to start really batting off um, colonialist uh, advances, uh, sort of um, just exploitative advances. Uh, and I, th- I think that's one of the most powerful and meaningful and like valued themes of the movie for me. Because there's a couple of points where something happens and I go, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you wish, you wish that people could say these things and take these moves on, on the global stage. Um, in the real world, but I, I, I do, I do enjoy it, and, and I, I agree with you that I think it's a, it's a very valuable central theme. Yeah, I, I also love, you know, the the first teaser that we got during San Diego Comic Con. I probably watched at least fifty or sixty times, uh, just because it was the first morsel that we had gotten. But it also shows how brilliantly that was edited, because that scene that we got in the trailer of Okoye and the Dora Milaje stepping out from the shadows. That's that scene where they open the door thinking they're going to get those resources and they step out. It was, Oh my God. (laughs) Say that again. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Thanks Chris. All right, Chris. So what's your final like here? Well, uh, it's, it's Angela Bassett. Like, uh, my God, like what a performance. Um, you said it that the scene at the UN, the way that she delivers that speech and the way that that scene is kind of juxtaposed with the heist, you just assume, as Ash said, it's going to be successful because it's always successful. Um, and then, you know, to have that flipped and then for them to show up with these mercenaries uh, and then, you know, uh, have have the French and American ambassadors. I think it was the American, the French and American ambassadors lunch for them, like to steal their lunch money like that in the, in, in the UN was just, was magnificent, magnificent. And I thought that magnificent, uh, magnificent. Uh, I thought Mag- it was just, magnificent. <laughs> it was, I thought it was a tour de force performance. Um, and uh, I, I just love Angela Bassett to the moon and back. So this was just, was magnificent to me. <laughs> I mean, she showed incredible restraint. I would have thrown a shoe at them people. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's fair. Now you would have had to drag me out of that place because everybody, everybody's getting it. I'm throwing hands at everybody because that woman, like every, they, they were sitting there. That one was sitting there with his long throat, looking in Angela Angela Bassett's face. The cheek, <laughs> the cheek. What did Yanis Yanis called her Emily in Paris? <laughs> If a if if a spear had gone through his chest into the back of his seat, I wouldn't have even looked up. I wouldn't have even looked up. Like it, I I I strongly hated everybody in that room, and you and yeah, that's all. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing. She's flawless. Um, so I think this brings us to the portion uh, where we get to talk about dislikes, and I think I'm gonna go ahead and just freely admit that finding things in this movie to dislike was rather difficult. Uh, so between the three of us coming up with nine dislikes is a bit challenging, and and I do think there is some significant overlap in some of the things we've chosen. Um, but why don't we go ahead and jump in uh, with Ash? What's your first dislike of uh, Black Panther: Wakanda Forever? I'm sorry to say this. I hope I don't sound ridiculous, but it's still dark. <laughs> there were still bits in it where I was like, what is happening here? 
I just think that as much and okay, the detail, the detail in the costuming is so beautiful, and so why don't they turn on the light? <laughs> yeah, the the main costume is so gorgeous, but it's also black, and so I feel like we get, and I, I know that in this one, if you notice that this one is a lot more shiny than the previous one, because when you look at when you look at um. Uh, Chadwick's costumes in the first film they're gorgeous but you have to see them in full light and then you see all of the patternings and all, all of the textural changes and the differences but they're beautiful when you get up close and this one I think they built it to be a lot more um, uh, to look good and still detailed and rich in motion but there was still a couple of scenes where I was like mm, this seems quite dark um, and I, I especially would have liked to see uh, some detail on uh, essentially, this was just a costuming point. I'm only saying this because when I, when this comes out digitally, I pause the film <laughs> to look at all the clothes um, and un the underwater scenes uh, and the, the one the one on the bridge. I think uh, was a little bit dark at times, and that that was it for me. I see. I I took I read that completely like oh dark themes, but no, I totally get it now. Um, yeah, it, it's funny, particularly I think of Talokan when you say that um, because. They have this sun. I need your sun to sun a little bit more. I want to see some of that stuff. <laughs> the sun it, is it not was, sunning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, where did you get this? Where did, where did you get this? Hmm? The big lots. Can we, can we, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Is it Shane? <laughs> um, but the, 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 and the thing is, is there's so much, there are so many amazing ideas at play. Like, Talokan being this completely non-directional architectural city was gorgeous. And I was like, as soon as I saw it, I was like, yes, exactly. Like if you were building a city underwater, there is no natural up, you know, that you could build a completely three-dimensional city. It was incredible. Um, and I, I suppose that's, you know, apart from it sometimes not being lit in a in a way that allows you to pour over every detail, I think that's a it's a, it's a success. It's a victim of its own successes, if I can ever say that sentence. Um, where they've created a world that is so rich, that is so detailed, and is so well thought out that you want to go everywhere, you want to do every side mission, and the film doesn't allow you to do that. And I walked away from it just like you know. All right, Dave, you touched on this a little bit uh, earlier, but your first dislike of the film. Yeah, I just think there was not enough uh, M'Baku. I think that that character had an interesting space that he was occupying. You mentioned, you know, how he was less uh, comedic relief and more uh, sort of an emotional center. Somebody who was trying to, to help, you know, center uh, Shuri a little bit. And I think we could have had a little bit more of that. Um, and then I think the payoff at the end when he decides to challenge to become king of Wakanda would have you know, had a little bit stronger resonance. I think it was good as it was, but I just wanted more from the character. I mean, we've all been reciting the the cool, cool con line, right? <laughs> yeah, I love how he says that. It's <laughs> so good. The guy is just incredible. What a performance! All right, Chris. So, what's your uh, what's your first major dislike? Maybe this is a hot take because I know she has a lot of fans, but I don't I don't like Julia Louis Dreyfus as the Contessa. Eighteen different names. Um, I, I she's great in like comedic roles. I I'm not a Seinfeld person, but I enjoyed her in like things like Arrested Development. I've heard Veep is good, so I always see her as comedic presence. And when I think of the Contessa Valentina, whatever, 
that's much more like a cutthroat evil Nick Fury behind the scenes type of character. That's not a comedic character to me. So I, I, I don't like her in this role. Uh, fair. I'm, ha- I'm having trouble caring. I think is my problem. And, and I'll, I'll talk more about that here in a sec, but yeah, I, I, I just struggle caring about the character and what she's doing. I know this is supposed to all lead to Thunderbolts and all that, but I don't particularly care about that team either. So like my, my caring meter is like at negative four right now and nothing that I've seen from the character has made me change my mind. I love how specific that was. Yeah, it's, it's negative four, maybe <laughs> negative four and a half. Not quite <laughs> negative five though. <laughs> like. This, he he really ran the math. <laughs> get, get your own fucking film. I don't want to do no. I don't. I'm sorry. And you know what? I'm I'm gonna say it. I don't want to do set up for a white people film here. Have you got 16 <laughs> other films you can do that. <laughs> this is this is Caucasian people's business. I don't care what's going on in your marriage. When they're going, oh, we used to be married. I was like, good for you. All the Caucasians to the back. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, what do you want us to say about this? What do you want us to do about it? They started doing shit with handcuffs. I was like, can you not? Can you do this somewhere else? <laughs> I just felt like every time, every time they came on, like even when he was running in the woods, I was like, I don't give a f- that you're on a run. And then it started playing rock music. It started playing. What was it playing? The only time oh. I heard any type of rock riff was when he was running in the woods, and I was like, God. <laughs> We've got to, we've got to, I know, I know it was in, it was probably in Kugler's contract of like, there needs to be seven minutes of footage of white people. <laughs> Please, Kugler. So we got it. But I'm, but also, I mean, I do think it served a purpose. I think, especially in this film, they were meant to, especially the Countessa was meant to be a distillation of, yeah, to- toxic myopic Westernism. They only every every like white person who stood for a particular country, except what's his name, was just another self-serving exploitative snake, you know. And I and I think their relationship really po- really was meant to be juxtaposed to the Ramondas, to the Riri's, to the Letitias, to the Mbaku's. I know that was a weird mix of sort of actor name and character name, but please like walk with me. <laughs> all of these people all of the people in Wakanda are forming community and they're trying to navigate their community with Namor and other civilized you know other groups of people who also have their own things and then you've got like what's her name she comes in and not only is she exploiting everybody not only is she tricking and deceiving everybody she acts with absolutely no honor to anybody she meets or even the husband that she claims to still have some sort of you know vibe with and i was just like that's an indictment this this character in this relationship is meant to be an indictment of what you stand for yeah i think that i think that ties up a little bit of of one of your dislikes but do you want to uh share another i think that was it i think i only had two uh yeah it was a bit dark at times you said you said too much cia still a bit dark and then uh no third no third yeah, that was it. There was no third. Yeah, it was too much. It was too much CIA. Like I, I get it. I get it. And I knew they had to be there, but um, I'm 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 not sure what the character and not even CIA CIA is sort of an entity because I think that's always going to be part of this. But like you said, the the specific focus on the Countessa and it's like what are you, what is she here for? Yeah, that that was that was it. And those are my two. 
actually, let me pass it on. So, Dave, Dave, what what's yours? Oh, this is uh, exactly pretty much the same thing. <laughs> I mean, I think we're all kind of picking. We're all kind of pick. It, we're all kind of picking on the white people in this movie, and which is great. Probably fair. Um, yeah, because. To to me, like that whole that whole Everett Ross subplot went absolutely nowhere. So he was married to the Contessa, and he's trying to help Wakanda. He gets arrested, he gets freed, boom, nothing. It, it leads nowhere. It's like the absolute road to nothingness. And every time that uh, that the whole CIA thing came on, I came on the screen. It was absolutely irrelevant to me. I just kind of got bored. Um, and so it, I think it's a shame too, because you know there's some good actors involved in in all that, but it was just not going anywhere. It felt basically exactly like you said. It felt like something that was like mandated. This has to be here, but it's not really relevant enough to the rest of the movie. It's all about setup for future stuff, and it just it that's the only part of the movie that I felt just completely fell flat. It, they, to me, they felt like scenes that they they felt like scenes that could have been lifted from. Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yes. Here's how, here's how forgettable it was. Dave put Ross Everett in the de- the doc. I told him it was Everett Ross. He said, I don't care. That's how forgettable he was. And, I, and I'm just going to say, dude, I knew you were going to bring that up. So thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were there. I mean, good for them, I guess. <laughs> You showed up. Have a participation trophy. Congrats. Good for you. <laughs> I, I, I said this before, but I guess Everett Ross is like the new bare minimum for allyship. Are you willing to get arrested for Wakanda? And the, 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 but yeah, the thing is, you're a spy. You've been doing this. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and, and to be honest, and the, every the worst bit was was every bit of goodwill that I had built up for Everett Ross over the first film was lost when I realized he was married to her. As soon as I went, as soon as he went, he was married to her, I went, oh, well, well, see, see, I was this close to supporting white people. (laughs) (laughs) I was this close. Oh, so you were married to QAnon. Oh, okay. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Total performative allyship. Oh yeah, you wanna do you wanna cross your fist over your chest, but who are you married to? Who are you in the bed with? You saw that and said more. <laughs> All the time, exclusively. <laughs> I apologize. My microphone just fell. Fell, fell, fell. Is that like fell or F- uh, fell fell over on the desk, but I got it I got it back into a workable position, so Listen, look, there's, there's been so many things that you've said, David, that I've had to be an adult about. Like, you've been talking about the, your best scenes being when, when people were eating carrots. You have been talking about them getting the microphone into good positions. Like, everything you've said has been an innuendo. It's, it, there's definitely some homoeroticism going on today. I apologize. Uh, I appreciate the, the, um, the consideration, but I'm, I'm always down for the gay shit. Don't worry. Okay, good. I, I, that's good to know. I think we're at Chris's next dislike. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, and next. So this next one, uh, I thought I thought Ash went thematically dark. So I was in agreement. Uh, Did we really have to uh, kill the Queen Mother? Did we really have to go there? So that minor nitpick dislike that like like Dave said, we're really grasping at straws here because uh, I overall just really really enjoyed the film but i didn't like having to kill mom and to a certain extent i think that was just one of those things that thematically was necessary to really push shuri into fully coming into her own um and and enhance sort of that like 
her having to face, you know, her her emotions and that her need for vengeance and taking vengeance on somebody. I think I think thematically and from a storytelling perspective, it made sense. Um, I I just don't endorse any time Angela Bassett gets removed from from you know future appearances. Um, yeah, very true, very true. Stand up in the cinema and go disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I I totally agree with Dave. I think like it makes sense because a they had to have somebody in the afterlife that she could talk to that was a positive influence if you knew that you were going to have the um the killmonger scene you also need a counter and then thematically none of leticia wright's arc would have been possible if ramonda was there to take the throne from her when she started to go left number one her mum probably would have stopped her going so overcorrecting to your point chris so her, her mom would have been too much of a balancing force for Letitia Wright to have a compelling arc because she would have, you know, been the amazing support that she has been throughout the, the other movie and been like a balancing energy. And then also, should she have been like, no, no, I'm going to go and scratch up Nemours back, actually. Thanks. <laughs> then Ramonda could have just been like, all right, well, you know what? Sit f***ing down. I'll take the throne back. So that I think it would have introduced a whole different tension of like, like reasonable, reasonable potential ruler versus um, grief stricken reactionary potential ruler. And she had to go at that alone. So I do, I do get it. But at the same time, like, and also she went out saving Riri and I feel, I feel like when they did that, I was like, you bitch. like <laughs> they, they did it. And I was like, you fucking Oh, sorry. Can I can I swear here? Oh, I have I have my little list for bleeps. You're you're all good. Oh no, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, you're fine. Um, but yes, I was like fiddlesticks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, you, you know, I'll have to bleep those, right? Those fiddlesticks <laughs> they have to be bleeped. <laughs> but yeah, because they they made her go out choosing to save Riri, so it puts the viewer in a position where either. Ramonda is a hero or Riri dies and there's no way that Ramonda would have seen that happening and not doing it so you understood it like you knew it as soon as Riri started going down I was like oh we're in a we're in a one or the other situation here and so yeah I mean it made sense we managed to keep Riri as a character through it so you know it wasn't it wasn't just a trivial sort of offing but it still stung yeah totally all right Ash did you want to do more on that not having a third to it (laughs) dave what is your third uh and final dislike of the film you know i think um it you know the the scuttlebutt um in in the online nerd community is that much like the hulk uh namor is sort of in a um rights limbo with universal holding the rights for solo movie and so we're probably not going to get um a solo movie of even of this version of the character um, and so I think my big my big dislike here is just that I wanted more um, of of you know this reinvention of the character and particularly his civilization. You know this is not you know this is not the Atlantis of the comic books. And so I wanted to see more of Talokan. I wanted to see you know more of the the characters he surrounds himself with. I think we had sort of a lot of nameless, faceless blue people. You know, as his supporting cast, there weren't a lot of characters. 
uh, to, for him to bounce off of in his own kingdom and for there to be like um, a really clear sense of how Talokan has developed since the people went into, you know, uh, underwater. And so I just wanted more of that civilization and how it functions and, and have a, a greater variety of characters and stuff. This is the kind of stuff you would naturally get in a solo movie, but if we're not, never going to get a solo movie, I just wish there would have been a little more of it here. And I'll go even, even just... A file an addendum because you hinted at it but my final dislike is i wanted more development for namora and atuma the biggest thing that you had for atuma was him squaring off with okoye and that was just like warrior back and forth so that was cool but there wasn't really much depth i i didn't even i didn't even catch the guy's name yeah like like to the point you know like i didn't even know that his name was atuma like i did not catch that in the movie so there was you're right there was just not enough development for non-Namor characters related to Talokan, I guess is the best way to put it. And then Namora had that really one beautiful scene uh, towards the end of the film. But then aside from that, you're exactly right. It was Namor and company, which, you know, I, I desperately wanted more. They, they know how to run up on folks, though. And there sure was a company. Yeah. At all times. <laughs> his, his, line, his line to Shuri, like, I clutched my pearls, where he was just like, bury your dead, count your losses. And I was like, oh... Oh, it's like that. Listen, every time, of course it's like that. Every time he appeared, there were 50,000 motherfuckers on a whale. <laughs> <laughs> that whale was working overtime. Do you know what I mean? Do you know how many bombs they brought? I was, I, when I saw that giant thing, I was like, oh my God, what is that? And it was individual bombs. Yeah. I was like, these, these people are insane. They're not playing. I saw somebody said, this is the most insane water balloon fight I've ever seen. <laughs> Listen, I don't know who's making those bombs. I don't know what they're getting paid, but it, it felt like sweatshop conditions to me because <laughs> how how many how many are in there? Like he told me, he told us, and, and that's this again. Do you know when you say like everything was so rich that you wanted more? I wanted to know so much, and this is to your point. I wanted to know so much more about. Um, the Talakan, like the the society, like who's making? Who are the warmongers? Who are the weapon makers? Like, how did they train those whales? Where did, where is all of this coming from? There was orcas at one point. I was like, incredible. And so, it's, again, it was like you're right. Every they made them so rich that it feels like such a a loss that we don't get to experience that richness. Ooh, here's another one I totally forgot about. The sirens slash mermaids and how they were just walking oh. off the edge of the ship. Oh my god! Oh, just in in the water going twenty one. Can you do something <laughs> for me? Can you talk to the ops next? <laughs> they, they were incredible. All right, so fi final verdict on the movie, Ash. If you had to give the sucker a grade, what what are your thoughts? Uh, what are we talking about? What's the? Oh wait, wait. Uh, do you do do you guys do letter grades over there? Yeah, like A, B's, well, and C's. We do loads of stuff. Well, this wouldn't be that. What's like? What's a? What's a solid A? Like, what's a solid A plus? Yeah, you want to give it an A plus? We can just go with that. Yeah, because we don't we don't really have that here. We do like numerical stuff more than anything. That's what we did in Germany too. Yeah. Yeah, only only the Americans want to be confusing for no reason in, in everything man let's just yeah. talk metric for a second like god can we just get on board with the metric system please jesus christ it's because they love misinformation <laughs> that's what yeah and if if they make the grade in if they make the grade in vague <laughs> then they can be like where's the where's the greatest country in the world and you go usa and they go hey 
<laughs> and it's like it's like how are we how are we measuring any of this? But yeah, a, a plus for the movie. Yeah, 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 definitely. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, same, same. I mean, like you know, you know, it's a good movie when we had to really nitpick to find any dislikes. Yeah, I'll get. Gi- I don't think I'll give it the plus. I'll give it an A. But that that CIA subplot just bothered the <laughs> out of me. Like, like, like I'm gonna be honest, it really did. It just it was every time me... these white people showed up, I was like, just get rid of the white people in this movie. We do not need them. They're not required for the story. It is. It's just not necessary. As, as the card carrying, as a card carrying advocate, an activist, I will say, how do you feel about rating down the black movie because of the white people? Let's discuss. <laughs> would it be, I, but you know, without joking for a second, would it be that difficult? Just say we're going to make a Black Panther movie and it doesn't actually involve white people. Like, can we just make a movie that's set in Wakanda and you don't have to have you know Ross Everett Everett Ross show up? Like, is is it really is it really so necessary for for Western civilization to have some 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 crackers in their soup? Like, is that really necessary? I do not think so. I think it would have been a perfectly fine movie without that subplot. Oh well, I, uh, yeah, I see you. I see you, but you know, like I, I think there's probably like, I, I, I fall back on that. I think there's contractual things. That I think is that is probably my notion as well. Yeah, yeah. There's, just, I think there's a certain amount of world building that every movie has to do as a matter yeah. of course, and there's probably yeah. some non-negotiable bullet points that get given to every director, which is your movie is where we launch this idea. Or where we launch this character, or where we hint at this thing, and you can you can do that as as big you can do that you know as you see fit. But this is what we need to see coming out of it. All right, well there you have it—a very uh, spirit discussion on Black Panther: Wakanda Forever, among other things. Apparently, um, thank you so much for Ash from X of Words for joining us in our discussion, and be sure to check out the X of Words podcast if you are so inclined. Any final words, Ash? Uh, no, thank you, thank you for uh, thank you for the invite. It's been a pleasure to talk to you for uh, what feels like a long time. I mean, usually usually I do mine for about twelve minutes, so this is, <laughs> I, uh, I've been able to get into a level of depth that I really really enjoy. So thank you, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, well, thanks for for coming on. It's been absolutely a blast. All right, folks, so stick around because after a short break, Chris and I will be back with some nerd commendations. Chris is finally gaming again. What is he into? We'll find out. And we're back, folks, and it's time for the best segment because we always save the best for last of the nerd by word. You know it as... Chris, what are you nerd commending this week to us? Oh, man. Uh, So we have talked about this game quite a lot uh, over the last year or so um, since its initial announcement at DC Fandom in August of 2020. Um, There was a lot of hubbub and criticism when it came to the gameplay uh, trailer reveals. But, dude, I bought Gotham Knights on a digital sale in the Microsoft Store. I absolutely love it absolutely love it there are a couple of nitpicks here and there um you know 
uh, Red Hood tra- uh, traveling via mystic pits uh, or uh, mystic like portals and and things of that nature. There's some silliness to it, but like I love everything about this game, and and I'm willing to overlook like the little nitpicks like that. Um, Robin's main costume, Tim Drake's main costume, is hideous. It's like a weird unbuttoned hoodie at the top. But thankfully, that there there are there is no shortage of customizable things uh, when it comes to suits and weaponry for each character. And here's 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 the hook, line, and sinker for me. The storyline is fascinating. If Batman dies. What happens next in the power vacuum that is left in Gotham in his absence, and then his uh, four of his many, many protégés try to step in and, you know, put things back together. It's also fascinating from a storytelling perspective to see Alfred. Um, I think that's been one of my favorite things to see as Alfred, who is, you know, an elderly individual who is Bruce's caretaker. You would exp- It's almost like burying a child. So um, that's a fascinating um, aspect to to unpack. There are a, a lot of cheese cheese ball type of um, emotional beats and and little clips here uh, in, in interactions between the characters, but it's fine. Uh, I'm here for it. Uh, the gameplay is pretty similar to the other um, like Arkham games, um, but this game single handedly has transformed my allegiances. And now I am absolutely obsessed with everything surrounding Dick Grayson. I'm reading all of his comics. Based on this game alone, I spent $99 on an ultra subscription to DC Universe Infinite so I could read Nightwing comics. I love Dick Grayson. I can totally relate to him as like this eldest child who feels the weight on the world, the weight of the world on his shoulders, um, being the first Robin. Um, he feels so responsible, like he should take up everything, and this is all on him in the absence of Bruce. Um, and then being able to kind of like decompartmentalize all of that and and trust in his siblings or fellow proteges. Uh, Red Hood is not one of my favorite compelling characters, um, but I like that he's juxtaposed against you know, characters like Dick, like Babs, uh, like Tim. Tim is this lovable little nerd. He's a fascinating character to play with too. There's just endless possibilities with this game and it makes it like endless fun for me. So so tell me a little bit about the gameplay. Um, I mean, I know you, you talked about like the story and the characters, but what does is, what is the gameplay actually feel like on this one? Because I was, I was a little weirded out by some of the stuff I saw in the early gameplay footage. Um, how does it play? I, I've, I think it plays really well. I think, like I said, it's very similar to the other Arkham games. Um, without being some of, some of the Arkham stuff was super overcomplicated. I'm looking at you, Arkham Knights. I, I really did not like that game. Or Ar- Arkham Knight was that the one where whatever that one was, I did not like it. Um, but it, it's pretty pretty simple and straightforward. There are like momentum abilities that you build up by like combo attacks and uh evading and dodging and then it's also pretty unique to each character you know you know dick's um fighting style is very much acrobatic um tim's is very tech based babs is um very very 
she's probably the closest to Batman's fighting style. Uh, and then, you know, of course, have Red Hood, who's this big bruiser type, um, go in guns blazing. So it's it's really unique to each character. And you can change the characters um, as, as much as you want to. So you kind of, it, it's really wide open too, because you can follow the main storyline or whatever, or you can just go on patrol and just collect clues. It's, um, if you, what I really love about it too, is like the detective base at its core that we saw in that first um, Arkham game um, was really, really cool. And it's present here. So I'm, I'm just, I, I love everything about it. I, I, don't really have a lot of criticisms of it and I'm I'm pleasantly surprised by it. That uh, sounds to me like I'm going to have to give this one a shot then. All right, Dave, what is your nerd commendation for this week? Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and go into the realm of um of movies for a second, which I haven't done in a hot second. Because I really don't have a whole lot of time to actually watch movies, but I was able to squeeze one in. Um, and that is The Black Phone. Uh, the Black Phone is a 2021 American coming-of-age supernatural horror film. Uh, it was directed by Scott Derrickson. Derrickson also had his hand in co-writing um, uh, the um, movie. It is an adaptation, actually, of a short story uh, by Joe Hill. Now, for those of you who listen to the byword regularly, you might have noticed I've been on a bit of a Joe Hill bender reading some of his uh, comic books as well over at DC's um, Hill House. Um, I'm also in, in the process of reading Lock and Key right now from IDW, so I'm kind of on a Joe Hill bender. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Hill is the son of prolific horror author Stephen King, and he appears to have some of the same proclivities as far as the things he likes to write about. Uh, the plot of The Black Phone is pretty straightforward. It's 1978. Uh, there is a serial child abductor on the loose. He is uh, named the Grabber by the media. Um, and one of the uh, main characters, uh, a boy by the name of Finney, he's 13 years old, uh, ends up being grabbed. Um, and he is locked into this like um, basement by the uh, killer who is um, played expertly by Ethan Hawke. And there is a phone in this basement uh, that an old school, not, not a cell phone, guys, like an old school like landline but the line is cut like the phone doesn't work for years already. Yet Finney, for some reason, is able to receive phone calls on this phone from the killer's uh, previous victims, like ghostly voices. And these uh, previous victims, some of which he knew from school, uh, are trying to give him tips and guide him in surviving uh, this endeavor. At the same time, Finney's sister, Gwen, who is concerned for her brother and who has inherited some kind of um, sixth sense from her uh, deceased mother, is trying to use her powers to help find her brother. Um, the movie is, you know, perfectly creepy. It has a little bit of that... Um, that it vibe, I guess the adaptation, the most recent adaptation of it also has a little bit of a, uh, that, that sort of stranger things thing where it's set in the past, in this case, 1978. But I think, um, unlike stranger things, which has a tendency of kind of rubbing your face into cultural 1980s touchstones, like new Coke and stuff like that. Um, th this setting is much more subdued and, and, and I would say, uh, realistic. It's not this heightened 1980s situation that we get from Stranger Things. It's very, um, I think, 
probably a little bit more honest, if, if that's the word I'm looking for. Um, the movie's perfectly creepy. Uh, it also has, you know, um, the, the really cool, like, uh, you know, child trying to come into his own kind of storyline and finding his power. Uh, the uh, ending of the movie is immensely satisfying, which is pretty unusual for these kinds of movies. Um, I'm looking at you, Stephen King, who has always horrible things happening to the main cast before the before the ending arrives. This is a much more um, positive ending in some ways, I guess I would say. Um, and the adaptation is really pitch perfect. I like the story to begin with, but the movie uh, does a really good job of expanding some of the ideas in the short story. So I, I thought the movie was just uh, was just a tremendous good time um, and, and comes highly recommended, Chris. All right, believe it or not, I'm thoroughly intrigued on this one because of exactly what you said, um, the it factor, um, pun fully intended, because I, I really, really enjoyed that film and the camaraderie and the coming-of-age elements of it. Um, I'm also equally intrigued simply because of Ethan Hawke's involvement and and what he was able to do in Moon Knight is, as the the main uh, adversary I thought was a really, really interesting portrayal and, and something I haven't, I haven't seen a lot of his work in, in recent years. So seeing him portray this creepy adversary was really fascinating. And, and now to see him go straight lean into a villain uh, is, is a high selling point for me. Yeah, and he does a fantastic job in this movie. The cast, generally speaking, is really, really good in this, especially uh, the child actors as well. So um, I know that Gwen in particular left a real impression on me in this movie, and I, and I hope to see uh, this child actress popping up in other things. Uh, just a very, very cool little movie and, and definitely worth watching. Alrighty, folks, that's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. If you like what you just heard, then please get on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a rating, a review, and subscribe so you never miss another episode. Um, we are available on every podcasting platform you can imagine. And if we are not on your favorite podcasting platform, then find us on social media and let us know, and we will make sure that we remedy that situation for you. And you can find us on said social media platforms as it stands right now on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord, individually that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.